0: And good morning. We do have several guests with us this morning, as Brian already mentioned, and some online. We always ask people to give us three chances because even a baseball player gets, right, three shots to swing. And surely one sermon will be good out of three and maybe somebody else will preach and it'll be even better. But anyway, we're glad that you're here this morning. Happy Valentine's Day because it'll be tomorrow, right? You're welcome, guys. I told you yesterday, even though some of us haven't got any flowers yet or anything, but we will. Because that's how we do it, right? Anyway, we're glad that you're with us. When you think about love, what are some things that come to your mind about love? First of all, where does love come from? By the way, even in the natural world, how, do, how does a mother cow know to love her calf? Some people say, well, that's instinct. No, it could be some instinct, but there's love there. What about people who love other people? Even a person who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior have, has compassion on someone. Maybe they're broke down the side of the road. Where does it come from to have compassion to stop and help somebody change a flat tire? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, that's a philosophical question, but I think it's a theological question because love comes from God because God is love. Love. And by the way, any time you see an act of love out of someone's heart, whether they are a believer or a non-believer, just know this, church family, that the reason they're even able to love is because they are created in the image of God, and therefore they receive the ability to love. So there's your theological lesson for the day. Now if I were to ask you, what are some central passages in God's Word, meaning very clear passages that express God's love to people, where would you turn? Come on. Okay, I put it on the screen. Christian, you cheated. Oh, yeah, I'm sure you didn't. Yeah, we know. We, we know. John 3 is a very central passage. What is another central passage on love? Can anybody? Can anybody? 1 Corinthians 13, I almost preached on 1 Corinthians 13 about the clanging gong. I won't get off on that because that's another rabbit trail. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched in between 12 and 14, which is the passage in Corinth where they are abusing spiritual gifts. And Paul gives them a, a spanking and explains what love is all about. Right in the middle of gifts, by the way. What is another passage on love? Romans chapter 5, what does God say? Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and God does what? His love poured out, gushed out, a very good passage. But this morning, I'm going to turn to John chapter 3, so I invite you to turn there. And I did not put it on the screen today, so you either need your phone or a Bible. And I know that everybody who ever went to Sunday school or ever heard this story always heard it about Jesus and Nicodemus. But let me just say to you, there's a lot more in the Gospel of John than a simple story about a religious leader who wanders around and comes to Jesus. This is an amazing book, by the way, and it's presented in such a way, and some scholars have decided that in the Gospel of John, there is this what they would call a motif. Anybody know what a motif is? a motif like this underlying theme, there is a secret motif of hidden disciples or secret disciples. People who really want to say that they're a Christian, they are somebody who has trusted Christ, but they are afraid to because the moment they say that, they will be demoted, persecuted, cast down, or cast out. Now, by the way, up until a few years ago, We would sit in this church and laugh at that, wouldn't we? We would say, oh my goodness, I can't believe people would be afraid to say that they're a Christian. Well, let me assure you the time has come right here in our neighborhood when it is no longer a popular thing to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I am a Christian, and I follow God. I believe His Word to be absolute truth, and all men to be liars, God to be true, and every man a liar. Let me tell you something, that's not popular. And this man, whose name is Nicodemus, was a very high superior guy. It would be like someone who would be seated on the board of supervisors and also, are you ready for this? He would also be a circuit court judge. So when you take those two positions and you put them together, very powerful man, and he would also be an elder in the church, by the way. Because this is how powerful this man Nicodemus was. I mean, everything about his reputation was on the line. And so John is writing this story explaining that now that Jesus has presented his ministry, he's going to now come forth, and this example is going to be one of the prime examples of God demonstrating his love to people who are even ashamed to say that they follow Jesus. Did you catch me on that? By the way, John chapter 3, a, mo- a very famous passage, but let me share something with you the other day. I was talking to a man who had supposedly been in church most of his life, and this is an honest story. I tell it. Let it never be true of anybody in Trinity. But I asked the gentleman, can you explain to me, John three sixteen? have you ever heard of it? He said, well, I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is. I said, okay, I'll start it for you. God so loved, yeah, I mean, you said that, but he went, drawing a blank. I said, God so loved the world that he gave his only, now I know you're going to say it, and I'm just telling you what the man said, and he just went, I don't know, you're going to have to help me. I said, okay, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever... Okay, you said it. He couldn't say it. So I began to ask him, so how long have you been? Well, he said, I've, I've been in church since I was a young man. About the time I was in college. Told me the church he went to and so forth. He said, but I, that's just not familiar to me. Could you explain that? Now... I just share that with you as a pastor. So as a you know, as a pastor, I'm sitting there going, Whoa. Good lesson to learn here. We assume that people know things and in reality they don't. And the guy ended up saying, you know, in my professional career in what I was in, we didn't discuss things like that. This was something that was only heard for a few minutes one day a week when we attended a worship service, if it was ever discussed. Outside of that Never read the Bible, never listened to sermon, never heard anything like that. And folks, let me just say, people surrounding you on every side is in the same situation. You and I are living in a culture, it's called a secular culture, that means absent of God. Life absent of God, that's what secular means. And increasingly, it's becoming more and more popular People do not know these messages from God, the Word of God, the story of God. So therefore, it is imperative as God's people that, first of all, we know it. And second of all, we're able to share it. Because this is the only way people are going to have hope in our world is if we become the mouthpieces of God. First, in our life, by the way we live and handle our life. And second of all, by the message we share, which comes from God. So in this passage, John chapter 3, it is actually begun with a very bad chapter break again in chapter 3, but it's preceded by this short paragraph in John chapter 2 verse 23. You there with me? Here it is. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. Under, circle that word man. You ready? I want to show you. I want to teach you something here. Circle it in your mind. He needed no one to teach him to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man. Do you all catch the link here? John is saying in 2 23 through 25 that there were certain people who believed in him, but they would not profess it publicly. And John said, Now I'm going to tell you who one of these men are. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man, you all like how I'm reading that? This secret disciple? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Stop marveling that I said to you, singular, you, stop marveling that I said to you, Nicodemus, that y'all... You like that? Plural. All of y'all must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you a teacher in Israel? And I'm going to interpretively read here. And you've never read Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 23 through 25? You're a teacher in Israel and you don't understand this? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know. By the way, who is we? I'm going to get into some issues here in a minute. We speak of what we know. Some people say, well, that's the disciples. No, it's not. No, it's not. Jesus here is talking about Himself, the Father, and the Spirit, the Trinity. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, plural again, y'all, you religious leaders, do not receive our testimony. I came from the Father and the Father verified me. And you don't believe Him because you don't believe me. You do not receive our testimony. If I have told you, plural again, earthly things, and you all do not believe it, How can you all believe if I tell you all heavenly things? Now he's speaking representatively to Nicodemus and the Pharisees. He goes on to say, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, and that is the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. How shall we know these things? That was Nicodemus' question. And Jesus said, This is how you're going to know it. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness because the people rebelled against God and were bit with serpents and they were all dying. And Moses got a serpent and put it on a pole and lifted it up in the middle of the camp while everybody was dying and hopeless. And said, If you'll look to the serpent, you'll live. And all the people probably said, Well, no, that's the most ridiculous medical thing I've ever heard in my life. If I have snake venom, shut up, look and live. So what Moses told them. Go back and read it in Numbers 21. Stop complaining. Look and live. And some of the people stopped and looked at the bronze serpent, which was a replica of what had bitten them. And the text says that they were healed. And so what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? He says, how can these things be? He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone would have to look at what was cursed on a tree. And when they did, they would have eternal life. And by the way, folks, that's the Christian message. Look and live. Look what he goes on to say. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, there's some debate, by the way, and you can get into this if you really want to. Are these Jesus' words... Well, if you have a New American Standard, how many of y'all have that? Anybody have a New American Standard? What color is your text starting in verse 16? Black or red? All of them red? Everybody's red? There, there is some debate starting in verse 16 on whether or not this is actually the words of Jesus. The Christian Standard Bible the New English Translation, and others say that this is not actually the words of Jesus. Now, don't get offended. I'm just telling you what different people say. They say that this is not the words of Jesus speaking, but it's more so the the words of John, the gospel writer, who records these words. New English Translation, Christian Standard Bible, there's some other versions that take that view. Others, along another line, uh, New American Standard The NIV and others have it in red ink and believe that these words are attributed to Jesus. Now, when you study this out in honesty, it could go either way. Okay? It could really go either way. And it doesn't matter. Does does it matter if these words were in red or in black? Let me ask you another question. Are Jesus' words in the Bible more powerful than the Apostle Paul's words over in 1 Corinthians and Romans? Y'all please answer that for me. Oh, thank you. Somebody said no. They are all inspired and they are all equal. One is not above the other. And you hear people say all the time, well, if I could just read the red, well, you better read the black too. Because they said it was just as much God's Word as the red. And by the way, the red letters were added in the Bible. Jesus didn't color them in red, please, please. Because Jesus never wrote a one Himself. That's another issue I'm not getting off. But my point is, He probably, this is where I would lean. Okay, watch me. I would lean, not far, but I would lean that these are possibly the words of Jesus, but I would also say they could be John's. Either way, it doesn't matter. Because here's what it says. For God so loved the world. I could really mess with you all right now, because if you got into language study, there is an issue with this word, so. And here it is. I'm going to share it with you just a little. Is, is the issue in the text here greatness? God so loved the world. Or is it manner? This is the way that God demonstrated His love. So if you would say it was emphasis, then it would read, for God so loved the world. But if it was manner, it would go this way. So this is how... God loved the world. Now you all can see which way I lean, but people are so scared to mess with John 3.16, they don't change it. For this is the way God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people, or man, loved the darkness rather than the light, Because their works were evil. Don't miss this. Are y'all ready? I'll point it out in a minute. But boy, we read over it and we miss it. Look in verse 16. For God so loved what? But what did man so love? Darkness. Thank you. God loved the world and the world loved darkness. Rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, this is Christ laying out to Nicodemus. Dude, you've got a choice. You're either going to hide in darkness and shame of me, or you're going to come out in the light. Now, by the way, do you all know the story of Nicodemus? Nicodemus is heard of again in John chapter 7, where uh, he, he talks to the council about not judging someone the law has not heard. And then he's seen again at the very end where Jesus is put on the cross, where he and Joseph of Arimathea were both disciples of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, I'm in nineteen thirty-eight and 39... Asked Pilate if they might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body, and Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. By the way, every time Nicodemus is mentioned throughout the Gospel of John, it's put right beside the fact that he came to him at night. He was afraid to be seen. Nicodemus... Also, who earlier came to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So he helped prepare the burial of the body of Jesus. Very interesting story on Nicodemus. Now, let me show you what happens here. John, the writer of the gospel, is paralleling for us people who are ashamed of Jesus secretly and people who are not. You ready? Ready? Now let's read the rest that's hooked to this because if you separate these two, you've missed the whole point. I'm in chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, after this, you know, Jesus talks to Nicodemus at night, we don't know anything else that happened. Don't you love the Bible? Just leaves it hanging out there in a the mystery. Did Nicodemus fall on his knees and say, Messiah, Lord, you are, you are the one who came to bring the kingdom You are the Messiah. You're the one sent from God. I believe in you, but I'm so scared to believe. I mean, you know, if you watch the Jesus film or whatever that was that came out, that's kind of what Nicodemus did and took up for him. I think they have weight to do that. However, we're not told. We're not told. Notice what John the Gospel writer is doing now. By the way, John the Gospel writer, the one that wrote this, is different than John the Baptist. And actually, he's not called a Baptist because he was a Baptist. He's, he's actually called John the Baptizer. The one who was actually out in the middle of the Jordan River baptizing people, identifying them with the message of the kingdom. That Christ the Messiah had come from God who was the king. Notice what happens. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside... And he remained there with them, and he was baptizing. Who was baptizing? What does it say? We could have fun with that. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. I always chuckle. People say, well, how does the Bible present baptism? We always smile and say, by immersion. Well, how do you know that? Well, read the passage here. The reason he was baptizing at this place is because water was plentiful there. So he took them out in the middle of the creek and he didn't get a cup and pour over top of their head. They put them down in the water. That's what baptism means, by the way. To immerse, to dunk, to sink, to plunge. But that doesn't save you. It identifies you with something or someone. So they were out there baptizing and the people were coming and being baptized... For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And all are now going to him. I mean, Jesus' ministry is outgrowing yours. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. You all remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? If I tell you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe heavenly things that I have seen and heard? Listen to what John's saying. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Exactly what he said just earlier. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this or makes it an absolute certainty that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure." The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God hangs upon him. What a powerful passage. Now, if I were just going to stand up here and read to you, and then everybody gets to sleep in the service... I would go ahead and read John chapter 4 because Jesus is going to go to another woman who is not going to be a secret disciple. She was a Samaritan harlot who had men galore. And Jesus has to go through Samaria and He meets this woman and tell me what happens. They ask for water and He tells her He's the living water and then she finds out He's the Messiah. What does she do? Is she a secret disciple? Well just in case you think she is. Jesus told her, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him because the Father is searching for people to worship Him in spirit and truth. If you go down in chapter 20, verse 28, uh, here's what the text says, So the woman left her water jar and went away in town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She wasn't a secret disciple. Then go down in verse 38. Uh, 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Woo. So now you have John the Baptist, who was an untrained, he wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He, he wasn't in a religious group. He was a wilderness man. Big beard. Phil Robertson. Big old rough country man. Worked on a farm. Called out. Never cut his hair? No, he hadn't cut his beard. He was a rough-looking rascal. And you have the fine-trimmed, sophisticated, trained Nicodemus. And then you have a Samaritan woman who has multiple men in her life. Let me ask you a question. Who was ashamed of Jesus and who wasn't? This is the parallel that, as God's people, we need to think about. Do you remember when Jesus said, you know, people were amazed. These religious leaders were so amazed that, that Mary Magdalene took her hair. You know, she was a prostitute. Christ forgave her. She took her hair and dipped it down in old greasy oil. And she wiped his feet with her hair. And those religious leaders walked by and said, Oh, how disgusting. that He would allow such a person as that. To touch him. Don't, don't you love Jesus? He looks at him and says, You know, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. But the person, and I'm going to interpretly read here, the person that's so self-righteous and don't even think they need to be forgiven, they could give a hoot. That was a terrible rebuke to that person. And the reason is because they understand God's love that has been given to them. Now, as we think about this issue, the Bible presents God's love in many ways. And if you want this for an outline, you can snap a picture or you can go back online and freeze it. But here is how it presents it. It's an active, searching, and forgiving love, as in the lost sheep. It's an immeasurable love. Can't be exhausted, can't be measured. It's an eternal love. It lasts forever. And it's also a sacrificial love. And that's what Jesus portrayed here. So how does John 3 portray this love? Since I've read this to you and now you know it, we can scoot right through, can't we? Well, first of all, here are some contrasts in John 3. Secret disciples versus open disciples. Nicodemus versus John the Baptist or the Samaritan woman. And we've already read through that, right? Nicodemus. How can these things be? You know, by the way, that's an interesting phrase where Jesus tells him. I want you to look at this because I have to explain it to you. John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, the the word there also means born from above. I think that's a much better translation. Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, are you all with me? What is the kingdom of God? This is a huge topic, great, great big topic. I, I could discuss it for hours and hours. But I'm going to boil it down to you. In the Old Testament, the anticipation was that God would come to the earth as king and he would rule and reign upon the earth. Many passages in the Old Testament talk about the Messiah who will sit on a throne in Jerusalem and the nations will come to Jerusalem and they will worship When God's kingdom is upon the earth. In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is seen taking the title deed from God the Father's hand, and he bestows power upon him to rule and reign upon the earth. When Greg sang about or read that from Revelation 5 this morning, that was the exchange of the title deed in the book of Daniel. Who is worthy to open the scroll? What scroll? The scroll of the one who was going to come to the earth and set up the kingdom of God. Not one man in heaven, upon the earth or under the earth, was able to raise his hand and say, I'm worthy to open the scroll, except for the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And all of heaven rejoiced when He opens the title deed to come to set up the kingdom of God. When God rules and reigns upon the earth, Nicodemus, as a religious leader, was waiting for the Messiah to come to set up the kingdom so that the Jewish nation would be exalted and they would be the head of the nations again and the other nations would be the tail. But they wanted to enter their own way and their own self-righteous ways of doing things and when Jesus came, He just ruined their little religious party. It wasn't about their self-righteousness. It was about their rottenness that they couldn't see. And in order to be able to enter this kingdom, they would have to be related to the Messiah. And that would require them to humble themselves, even as religious leaders, to bow to Jesus the Messiah. He told Nicodemus, unless a, a man is born from above, he won't even see the kingdom. Now, if you read other accounts in the Gospels... There is mention of the religious crowd who were cast out of the wedding banquet who thought that they had a seat at the table but when they went around and checked the invitations all those seated at the table were sorry sir you don't have an invitation outside the courtyard you're not part of this wedding ceremony you you're not going to eat with us outside And they would get them up and they would remove them outside and they would stand there and they would look in and go, well, I was sitting right there. Now, it's not talking about loss of salvation, please, please. That is parallel to the wedding banquet that will occur upon the earth when Christ rules and reigns upon the earth. He'll kick it off with a banquet. You know, the Bible does teach that there will be an earthly, physical reign of Jesus upon the earth but listen to what he told Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you won't even see it. In other words, you, you will be totally excluded from it and you won't even see it. Unless you're born again. Unless you're born from above. So, there's this great contrast. Now Nicodemus is at this great High point in his life. What am I going to do? I mean, obviously he lived for the kingdom. He wanted to be in that kingdom. So what did he do? Well, it appears from the Gospel of John, he believed in Jesus. Now, since I opened this can of worms, uh, the kingdom of God. Now, you hear some people, and by the way, if you go to a hundred churches, you're going to hear a hundred different answers. People use kingdom of God and born again as exact parallel terms. That is biblically and theologically incorrect. Now, I'm not being a snob up here, but I want you to understand me for a minute. There is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom. Here it is. If you don't believe in the Messiah, you won't be a part of it. There's a spiritual aspect. You say, well, now, wait a minute. What about, what about Paul in the book of Acts when he goes around preaching the kingdom of God? Okay, what did he preach? That Jesus was coming back to the earth to rule and reign. You say, what about Colossians where it says we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. That is positional truth. Just like the fact that you're righteous. You say, well, how do you know that? The parallel epistle for it in Ephesians where Paul says you are seated in the heavenlies. Well, after we get our foyer finished, you, you maybe feel like you're seated in the heavenlies. But right now, you're seated in Trinity community. But positionally, you're just as well as being in the heavenlies in Christ. Are y'all tracking with me, or am I talking to myself? Okay. <laughs> so, when Paul told him in Colossians, You've been transferred into the kingdom of his son, that is positional truth. Your relationship with Jesus Christ has assured you a positional place. Are you ready? not only will you see the kingdom, but the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians and many other places, you will inherit it. And based upon the faithfulness in your Christian life here in this earth and what you do will determine what you do in the kingdom. And those rewards and those positions will be handed out at something known as the judgment seat of Christ. Now listen to me because I'm making an important link here If you and I are ashamed of Jesus in this life, according to Paul in in 1 Timothy, if we are ashamed of Him, He will be... Can you all finish that? He will be ashamed of us. That's why as your pastor, I always tell you, don't ever be ashamed to to take a stand for Jesus. Never! Never! No matter what men may do to you on earth, on this, earth, and no matter what they may take away, it will not compare to the glory that is to come. Don't live your whole life for what this miserable, wretched place will bring you, because I want to assure you of something: you will be disappointed when you close your eyes, because we will all die. Lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust nor Democrat or Republican can take them away. Where a thief doesn't destroy and nobody can kill and take it away. Lay up treasure in heaven because the treasure in heaven will follow you back down to this earth. Nicodemus, unless a man is born from above, he can't even see the kingdom of God. How shall a man be born again? He must believe. How must he believe? Just as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, and the people who were bitten and dying had to look and live, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. All they have to do is look at the Savior, see their need, believe that His death on the cross was taking their place, and they too will have eternal life. I want you to listen to me, friends. That's that's not hardly the message that we hear today. What we hear today is mostly this. unless Unless you are this, and unless you do this, and you do that, and you feel this way, and you... Look and live. God doesn't take a clean fish. He takes a dirty fish and then He guts it and cleans it. Don't waste your life trying to get yourself right to believe. When the Holy Spirit convicts your heart to believe on Jesus as your Savior, put your faith in Him. He'll clean you up after you do that. But a lot of people wait And they wait. And they think they've got to get themselves in a certain position to where God will accept them. He'll accept you right where you are. Right exactly how you are. Come to Jesus. D.L. Moody tells a story. He traveled over in England. He met a young preacher and Moody was going to be nice to him and said, If you ever come to America, look up Chicago and I'll let you have my pulpit. Now if you know Moody... He was in Moody Church, which is a huge church, big facility. Well, Moody didn't know, but about a year later, the young man telegrammed him and said, "Landing in Chicago tomorrow. It was on a Saturday. Moody panicked. He said, Oh, my goodness, I promised him my pulpit. I'm not going to be here tomorrow. I had somebody else who was supposed to speak. What am I going to tell him? He came from England. So he sought out his best counselor, his wife. Well, honey, what do I do? And she said, Well, you've already taught him he's going to preach. Let him preach. Moody said, But I'm not going to be here, and we're supposed to start four days of meeting. She said, Let him preach anyway. So Moody met with the young man and said, Okay, I'm going to let you preach. What are you going to preach on? He said, John 3 16. Moody said, Okay, well, I guess that's fine. Moody left. Listen to this story. Moody contacted his wife the next day and said, Honey, how did he do? She said, He preached better than you did. <laughs> Moody said, Wonderful, I think. What did he preach on? She said, John 3, 16. He told sinners that God loved them. Now, listen. This, this is where Moody learned. Moody says that up until that point, he could not confidently say that God loved sinners. And so Moody stopped his meetings and went back and he listened to that young man and he said... Lo and behold, he preached on it for four days. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved the world. And Moody said after four days, it totally transformed his mind and life that he could stand up and look into the eyes of every man and say, God truly, wholeheartedly loves you. He loves you so much that he wants you to believe in his son, so that you might be His child. And the man wrote this little phrase, God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that He gave the greatest act, His one and only, the greatest gift, that who, His only Son, that whosoever, the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest simplicity. In Him, the greatest attraction, shall not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. God so loved the world that He gave the greatest lover, degree, company, act, opportunity, simplicity, attraction, promise, difference, certainty of possession, That whoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. What a message. Secret disciples. God's love is extended to both. This is what's amazing. He still loved Nicodemus even though Nicodemus was ashamed of him. Does that bring comfort to your heart? Now let's not stand up on our high horses. You ready? Because I'm, I'm going to be right there with you. Has there ever been times in your life when you had a chance to speak for Jesus, but you were afraid? Anybody that wants to repent when the service is over, you can come up here. If you sat there and went, "No, not me," I not never. Every one of us, right here included, have had times when we should have spoke, but we didn't. God does not stop loving us because we don't speak. Aren't you glad of that? His love is not conditional. It's unconditional, unmerited. Poured out upon us. And it is extended to both. The second contrast, God's love versus man's love. Quickly here, God so loved the world, but man so loved darkness. And even though man is in darkness... God's forgiveness is still extended to him that whoever believes might have everlasting life. God loves the world. Men love darkness. Now, by the way, let me plow the ground a little bit. Do Christians love darkness? What is darkness, by the way? Darkness is symbolic here for sin because when we sin, we hide. That's what we do, that's our nature. We like to hide. Now, question for you. Are there Christians who love darkness? Go ahead and say yes again. Is that, is that propensity in every one of us to love darkness? Go ahead and shake your head yes. That's our nature. Listen to what the same writer to this epistle, this book, gospel, wrote in 1 John. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him and we walk in the truth, basically. But if we love darkness and we hide it and say we have fellowship with Him, we tell a great big fat lie. So here's the remedy for Christians who love darkness. If we confess our sins as Christians, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our Christian sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not restore the relationship, but restore the fellowship. So this passage goes both ways. It talks about unbelievers who love darkness and believers who love darkness. Because that that is in all of us. It doesn't leave. And then finally, the third contrast is belief versus unbelief. Now, let's follow through this. Are you ready? I'm going to give you a quiz. I'm going to start in 3.16 again. So don't put your Bible up. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever does what? You all say it loud like you mean it. Okay. Now, either this is God's Word or it's not. The one condition for eternal life is belief. In Jesus, whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17. Because, I mean, I'm going to read here. I can't help it. God, God didn't send Him to condemn the world. All He had to do was withhold Him. The world was already under judgment. And don't. This is ridiculous. God didn't send Jesus to, to damn the world. The world was already damned. It was already under judgment. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever, what? Believes in Him is not condemned. Condemned. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. It doesn't say whoever acts this way, whoever doesn't have these thoughts in his mind, whoever doesn't say these things out of his mouth. It says whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But... Whoever does not is condemned already. Whoever believes is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Look at this contrast. One is for eternal life. One is for eternal condemnation. And it all hinges upon one individual act, which is what? Belief. Do you believe that Jesus the Messiah died on the cross to pay the full penalty for your sin as the one sent from God to bear that? Do you? If you do, guess what? The text in God's Word says that you are not condemned. That means when you stand before Almighty God, even as a Christian... I don't care how rotten you've been or how scared you've been or whatever you've been like Nicodemus, and all of us have some of that in us, and I don't go pointing that holy religious finger at anybody. Because at the judgment seat of Christ, the only person we're going to be worried about is right here. And as a pastor, I'm going to have to give double account that I shared the truth of God's Word with you, and I wasn't afraid of you. I wasn't afraid of you because I was going to speak God's truth. It's not mine. It's His. It's His and tell you the truth, whether you liked it or not, whether you stayed or whether you didn't, whether you got mad and ran off, and whatever you did, I had to tell you the truth and do it lovingly. But when we all stand before Jesus, we may lose rewards because of some of the things that we have or haven't done, but we will not be condemned. And the Apostle Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the spirit and not the flesh. So don't walk according to the flesh so that you don't lose inheritance out in the future kingdom, but you know what? You'll not be condemned. Now I'm going to tell you something that'll that'll turn a Baptist into a Pentecostal. <laughs> no condemnation. But he who believes not is condemned already because he hasn't believed. And here's the judgment. Light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They loved it. The contrast, condemnation versus no condemnation. What are some truths from this passage? First of all, God's love is a seeking love. He he sought out Nicodemus. He sought out John the Baptist. He sought out the Samaritan woman. It's a seeking love. Maybe He's seeking out you. You say, well, how do I know if He's seeking me? Well, if there's this uneasiness in your heart that you don't know whether you've believed on Him, that's a good indication He's seeking you. I can't tell you how many times I sat and listened to a gospel message pierced on the inside. I was not a believer. I was not a believer. He, the Holy Spirit pierced me. I was scared. I suddenly became more scared of eternal condemnation than I did what anybody else thought. And God so worked in my heart and gave me faith to believe. And when He did, I exercised that faith in believing that Jesus died for me. He saved my soul. God's love is a universal love. Whoever believes in Him should not perish. I love to watch people play games with this verse. Love to watch them. You know, I, and I don't have time. If I go to a commentary and buy a commentary, it's one of the first passages I, I look at. This one right here in 2 Corinthians five nineteen and First John chapter 2, and I see whether the commentator tries to take the word world and limit it down to a few people. And if I see that, I write a, a big old R on the front of it. Not rejected, because there's some things you can learn at it, but I know exactly where he's coming from. God so loved the world. His love is universal. Whoever believes has eternal life. He doesn't just pick out uh, this, that, that, that. Now that doesn't mean God doesn't have elect. I like what Mart R. said. He said, you know, you trust Christ as your Savior. You're walking through a door on one side. It says, whosoever will shall come. And as a believer, you trust that and you walk through and then you turn around and look at the back side of the door and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. And DeHaan said, what a great mystery. Never never understood that. The offer is for you. People say, well, how do I know if I'm elect? Will you believe on the Son? That's how you can know whether you're elect or not. It's universal. His love is liberating. No condemnation. What a gift. And it's a humbling love. Now, what are some truths that you must? Listen to me. You can't leave here and cut me offline or whatever you do without acting upon these truths. Number one, your eternal destiny is determined right here on this earth, not in heaven. If you walk out this door or you turn me offline... And like a young man yesterday, or in a car crash and you become suddenly brain dead and your life is getting ready to die even though he was 19 years old. Your eternal destiny is fixed, my friend. Done. This is your chance on this earth to accept Christ as Savior. There's no such thing as purgatory. It's all a man-made ridiculousness that has no merit to it whatsoever. Your eternal destiny is determined right here. What will you do with Jesus? Will you believe on Him and have no condemnation? Or will you choose to not believe on Him and be condemned already and continue in that? The second truth, the new birth comes through a simple gaze of faith, not by a perfect faith. Listen, it is not the amount of faith you put in Jesus. It is the fact that you put faith in the right object. The right object for your salvation is not your behavior. It's not how you act after you trust Jesus. The object of your faith is the Messiah, God's only Son, and the only one who could ever do it to take your place. It's not the amount Jesus said if somebody had the faith the size of a mustard seed, he could move a mountain. Let me tell you something. It's not the amount of faith you put in Jesus, it's the fact that you put faith in Him. And you believe He becomes your Savior. And the third truth, you must, you must believe in Jesus to have eternal life. You, you can't inherit it from your family. It won't rub off on you because you come to church, whether this one or another one. You must And for me not to stand here and emphatically say, you you must do this. You know, you hear people say all the time, hey, preacher's telling us what to do. I can't stand it. Let me tell you something. I have enough fear of God that I would stand here and plead with you. Plead with you. Trust Christ as your Savior. You do not want to enter eternity without knowing Him as your Savior. I promise you, you don't. Because if you know about hell and the lake of fire and eternality, like I know about it in God's Word, you better hear me. He loved you and He made provision for you to escape. Believe in Jesus today. The greatest gift of love ever. You know, many churches sing F.M. Layman's great song, The Love of God. But did you know that, interestingly, many people don't know that the last stanza of Layman's song, he didn't write. As a matter of fact, this stanza came from an insane asylum where a man had scribbled on his cell wall these words about the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care, huh, in despair, God gave his son to die. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above? It would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole if it was stretched from sky to sky. The love... Of God. What have you done with Jesus as your Savior? Will you trust Him? You can do that right where you are. Pray with me. Every eye closed. Father, I pray that you'll open the hearts of anyone here or who may watch us that does not know Christ as Savior. This is what you do, friend. You simply say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross in my place and for my sin. And I trust You. I receive You by faith that You did that for me. And if you're willing to do that this morning, based on the Word of God, He will grant you eternal life. So I encourage you to do that today. And Christians, all of us here, all of us online, help us love the light and not the darkness. And may we never be secret disciples for Jesus, But may we openly say, God loved me, I love him, and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and next. Thank God to the Gentile. Thank you, Father, for doing that for us and for giving us Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.